Welcome to episode four. We've got a special guest joining us today. Mohib Zara is a hardware hacker, roboticist, installation artist, software engineer, and all-around cool guy. I met him at a hackathon in Las Vegas a few years back, and I've always been impressed with his creativeness. He's now a senior developer advocate at Amazon Web Services, where he makes cool projects and writes articles to help other people get started using AWS. Specifically, Harris and I want to get his insights on what it means to be a developer advocate and how that role might benefit companies from both a marketing perspective as well as building relationships with customers. Let's dive in. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Right. Welcome to the show, Mohib. We've got some cool things to ask you about being a developer advocate. And I know you're working with Amazon Web Services right now. Is that right? Correct. So can you describe to us what does it mean to be a developer advocate? So being a developer advocate, uh, it tends to be one of those things when someone asks you, like, what's your job? It's uh, one of probably the most complicated answers you'll get out of anybody because it varies. <laughs> it means something different, I think. Uh, wherever you go uh, at Amazon right now. So we're, we're thinking of developer advocate somewhere like an evangelist, but a step above where we have that feedback loop with the product teams. So uh, our job is essentially we're like the foot soldiers that go out there, interact with the community. Uh, I had a friend describe me as a professional customer once and that like your job is to you know use the platform as a customer, interact with customers, with developers, understand what their pain points are, understand what they want to learn and try to anticipate what they might benefit from learning. And then going out, creating that content, uh, going out there, talking to them, finding them where they're at, you know, and then just basically just being a content machine and then bringing whatever information you uh, kind of get from these conversations you have with them from um, monitoring the interwebs, right? And then you bring, and so for us, we bring that then back to uh, our own internal team of uh, developer advocates, uh, discuss that, create notes, and then talk to the product teams and be like, hey, this is what we're seeing. This is where people are struggling and this is where we see the direction. And then we can actually help shape the product in that sense, right? Because it's not just about like putting out good content, it's about making sure that, you know, our roadmap is, you know, we've got, our, our North Star should always be what people are actually need and want and what can help make their lives easier. So talk to me a bit about that feedback loop because I find that fascinating because Years ago, I remember applying for a couple of developer advocate, and I believe at the time they were called evangelists. Are they still called evangelists, or is it kind of moved towards they're called developer advocates now? So I think it really depends on where you're at. Some places are still calling them evangelists. Um, it, it, it really is kind of the same job. Uh, okay. Developer advocate, I think, just kind of clarifies that idea that when you're in those meetings, you are the advocate for the developer. You're the voice of the developer, right? Like I always joke that, you know, I fight for the user. <laughs> and, right. 
that's really where uh, I think maybe one could draw a distinction, but at the end of the day, like whatever company you're at, I would hope that they're listening to what their evangelists are saying and, you know, that they are doing their best to understand what people want. And when you're on a development team or a management side of things, uh, well, you might have some understanding of what your developers and your customers are looking for. It's easy to get lost in the technicalities of development, right? I've been on both sides of that equation where, you know, you get so sucked into developing something that um, you forget what it's like to be someone from the outside coming in. So you start to get more technical and then that's where you'll find if, if you go and if you've ever encountered a product that's meant to be used like an API and notice that like, why is this so technical? Like, why does this look like an internal API? I would argue those that's probably a company that hasn't really listened to their evangelists or maybe they don't have evangelists or advocates because they've, they've lost touch with what an outside uh, perspective looks like, right? When you talk about getting feedback, I think one of the challenges for hardware is that a lot of times the source files are binaries or it's you know, difficult to actually give feedback, whereas in software projects, it might be easier to call out specific lines of code. Um, so I'm curious, like, what does getting feedback look like? Literally, how do you get feedback from people? And then how do you share that in terms of knowing what's working and what's not working? So I try to get feedback in kind of a natural way. It's almost like divining it out of the ether, right? So there's you know a couple of different channels you can take, right? There's the you know, the Stack Overflow method where like either you literally have pages on Stack Overflow that you just go through, um, and that, that's as indirect as it can be, right? Whereas uh, you're expecting them to kind of bring that feedback to you in some place, whether that's through a form or through email or through you know DM me on Twitter. Um, I like to go out to events, talk to people and just be like, Hey, have you tried this thing? Like what's, um, I, I tend to focus more around, um, getting started, like seeing how was everybody's experience getting in to begin with. Right. Cause like once you're, once somebody's at that point where they've experienced it enough, they've gotten through the hurdle, the first initial, you know, barriers to entry. And once they're like in the deep end, generally they're fine and they understand kind of the quirks of your product and might be able to teach themselves. But even then you want to find out like, like for, I try to think about how do I approach learning a product, learning a software tool. And then I try to see, like, I, I look at that from an outside perspective. I'm generally new to a lot of Amazon services, for example. So I'm already lucky enough that I'm not, I guess, tainted by having knowledge. <laughs> Uh, so I can see what that initial perspective looks like. So when I have these conversations out at events like events like Supercon or or even more uh, uh, traditional professional development conferences like GoTo, uh, yeah, I try to center them around like, how was your experience getting in here? What what pain points did you experience? Uh, what kind of things are you trying to accomplish? Uh, and just, you know, you want to find out what is this person trying to do? Have they used your product or service? Uh, and if not, why? Like, what was it just they didn't know? So then you find out, okay, here's the feedback I'm getting is like, we're not getting 
the word out there well or when we're not our messaging's not right so that might be a more messaging problem that's a marketing issue uh and or maybe even a philosophical <laughs> issue and then second it's right is it a technical you know aptitude issue right is it just because our messaging also isn't geared towards um someone who might not understand that well right so there's a number of different ways it's best but it's finding out what is preventing them from uh, taking advantage of something that you can provide that makes their life easier and why is it maybe not making things easier and then you we, we generally collect that feedback uh, just in the form of notes so we have like a number of quick docs and we just share those within our team so anytime so like when you have a team of da's uh, which i know not every company has the luxury of having more than one evangelist or da or developer advocate uh, it's, you know, you try to fan out, go to these different types of events, collect all your notes, and then try to meet with your team and be like, okay, here's what I saw. And then, especially when you start to see like, okay, we're hearing a lot of similar things, then we know that this is something that we really need to start putting some effort towards. That's a good point. And do you find that the companies you've worked with as a developer advocate there were formal methods of providing that feedback to the internal developers or was it usually just more informal and did you find any communication breakdowns like did you find that there were walls between the internal developers and developer advocates and if so what did you do to get around those so every place is different so uh, you know evangelism developer advocacy it's it's an evolving thing and i don't think anywhere i've worked has had the same way of doing things like so the first time I got into it, you know, with Octablue and Citrix, so we're building an IoT platform at the time, so I was working with a lot of hardware companies. Uh, I was also a developer, so in that case, it was a different environment where it was like a flat structure startup style, right? So uh, I took it upon myself to be primarily the community evangelist, community manager. You know, at that time there wasn't like, what do we, what do I call myself? I don't know, IoT community manager, but. At that time, it was like taking it directly too, right? There was, it was a direct pipeline where I was around the developers. I was creating content that the developers on the team were also looking at and then saying, hey, maybe they were coming to me and being like, hey, this experience isn't good. Let's fix that, right? So there, there can be the reverse loop, right? Where you talk to developers. Then when I was at Hologram, it was a little bit different, right? That would say... Uh, I didn't communicate much with the developers as much as I did have like a really good pipeline for measuring uh, how well we were doing in terms of reach of our content. Uh, so each, each place has its strengths. Uh, everybody's figuring things out. Uh, at Amazon, I'll say it's probably been the most organized. So generally our pipeline is right. We have these syncs with product teams. And I think that's the best experience I've ever had where because there's, you know, there's a number of ways you can go about it. You can send an email, you can create a support ticket. Uh, you know, the bigger a company gets, you're generally getting into those more uh, technical methods of getting that info out. But I think the best way is to just have conversations. So be like, hey, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it takes, we need to talk. And we need to talk with developers there, right? Uh, like some companies will have you kind of uh, gated through like now you got to go through managers but I think it's very very important to keep 
the kind of spirit and energy of evangelism within software teams as well, right? Uh, there should be some form of communication where you're encouraging developers on a team to also evangelize as much as they have an opportunity to do so. So generally say, uh, to maybe better answer your question, I'll give you an example. So I wanted to write this uh, blog post about one of our services that I noticed that I think this was a problem. So I created kind of a, here's a blog proposal, sent it out to the product teams and said, hey, share this with your developers. Let me know what they think. Um, let me know, am I doing attacking correct information? Do you guys really see this as something important? And then get that kind of buy-in. So you want you got to think of your company internally as your as a community that wants to reach out to the broader community. So create that discussion internally first, then make sure you create that blog post or that tutorial with that buy-in, and then put it out there. Because then it's not just oh, hey, uh, somebody put out this thing about one of our tools and we didn't discuss it and maybe we're about to change things or, uh, you know, I'm, I actually forgot the question. <laughs> no, you answered it perfectly as far as what are the feedback mechanisms that are used to your internal development teams? And you said that the, the best way is to have, the best way is to have face-to-face -face conversations yeah. on a regular basis with them. And hopefully in larger teams that results in say bugs being created or you know tickets being created like you said those technical tools are really good um no that answered it perfectly and my my follow-on question is what do you find the best formats for getting feedback from the users right mm -hmm. you go out to a lot of events right you go to conferences and you go to um are hackathons still the big thing is that because that was a lot of develop advocacy that was going out to hackathons so that kind of died I think hackathons are still a thing the issue with hackathons is if you're the best way to do a hackathon in my opinion are small hackathons like I'm mm. I'm a big fan of like 25 to like max 60 at a hackathon keeping them small keeping them from getting to I actually have a lot of opinions about this so in the past, there have been companies that I think go way too far with hackathons and then they become too uh, too corporate. And I think they lose this kind of spirit. Like, this is where I might differ from a lot of other evangelists where uh, I'm kind of a purist sometimes when it comes to hardware hacker culture, uh, being you know from the hackerspace community. Uh, hacker, I think hackathons should ultimately be about the personal growth within the people who are competing. Like I've, when I've been a judge, I've judged based on how well did the individual members like grow through, like what were they like when they came into this hackathon? Or what were like when they left? Like did they come in not having done anything before and by the end of it did they build some sort of crazy contraption that has an app, even if it's like janky, it's like, wow, this person learned and that to me is interesting because then I want to talk to that person and be like, what was your experience like? What, uh, how did you get there? Like what worked that we provided and what didn't work? Whereas these larger hackathons, I think when you, they're hard to do because they cost money and you have to get buy-in from whoever you work for to be like, okay, we're going to send you there. We're going to sponsor, um, you know, are we going to provide hardware or 
if you're trying to organize your own, it's very, it's, it's hard to do. Like if I'm just at my company, like let's do hackathons. They're like, okay, we have to allocate $100,000. And there's also no good way of measuring, you know, what the value is in terms of like, you know, companies have to think in ways that evangelists are, don't have to necessarily, right? We are generally more lucky than the average person working at a company where we don't have like specific deliverables, right? Our deliverable is just make it good for people to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I think uh, hackathons are amazing. Uh, I think uh, keeping a more learning-based workshop style, free form and not about make a cool business story for us to then use and sell on your behalf, right? <laughs> that I'm yeah. kind of against. Uh, so... Uh, I'm I'm really glad to hear that because that was annoying me for the longest time about hackathons, right? As much as I like going to them, helping out at them, it was always who had the best business pitch, and like mm -hmm. regardless whether they learned anything, and the people who won a lot of times were people who came in that already had this idea and they were working on it as a business and they pitch it and won, and you're like, wait a minute, that that mm -hmm. kind of ruins the spirit of hacking and a hackathon to me. Like you come in with ground zero, everyone's you know. They might have a different experiences, but you have no code written, and a lot of these people were just thrown at that out the window, and they'd still win, which I found frustrating. But I like your point of, if you're a judge, judging based on how well the individuals did and learned from it, and I guess this also helps you from the as a brand advocate to know, are people really using our tool in, in the way we intended? Right, and, and can, they, can they succeed in using it in a hackathon environment, right? So I think the it's one of the best ways to gauge a tool. It's like, okay, this person has never used this tool before. And then in a day we're able to make somewhat of a, you know, uh, a end to end product or hack, right? That, that shows you that your tool is great, right? And, and I always go back to when I think about when, uh, when I was board member at Heatsink Labs or, or 513C nonprofit hackerspace in Arizona, uh, you know, we had the storefront property, so like people would just walk in all the time and be like, what is this? And generally you'd get reactions all over the place like, oh, I can't learn that. That's too much. That's too hard. I don't know any of that stuff. And I'd be like, listen, we do workshops with seven-year-olds who have never touched like computers in their life. And in an hour, I've taught them to program a robot, right? So <laughs> yeah. you can learn anything. And... Um, yeah, so it's just like that's the way I like to approach it as opposed to, I don't know, making things um, complicated. So that's just, okay, I actually forgot the question again. <laughs> no, it's all good. I, I kind of meandered on that one. It was, it's, you know, we, we both of us went on this rant about hackathons, and I love your perspective on mm -hmm. it. Um, my original question was what formats work best yeah. for the feedback from the yeah. users? Are hackathons a good way? And it sounds like they are for you, but what are the formats so, you find So uh, some of the webinars are actually really good. So we've had a lot of success with, uh, believe it or not, Twitch. So we, within our team, we have a number of regular like Twitch broadcasts that we do. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, we have like office hours, Twitch streams that we do with like live chat. And so we try, so now that we have a bigger team, uh, we, uh, we, you know, we can kind of attack all together. So like we'll have a number of us be in the actual chat, just fielding questions, uh, while also doing the live stream. 
so somebody behind the camera in our studio uh, taking questions or maybe conversation style uh, kind of like this uh, or a webinar walkthroughs uh, likewise where you know we have some content where we're explaining a walkthrough of how to do some task or some build some sort of application and then have the rest of us fielding questions uh, talks you know you can never go wrong with doing a talk uh, I try like I, I prefer uh, in my past work to do talks that are somewhat informal I think it's really great to have you know yeah, this is a technical walkthrough but you're not going to get feedback while you're doing that you might get like survey feedback and that's that's a great way to get information after the fact uh, not everyone does a survey uh, so uh, for those types of things leave if you're ever doing a talk leave at least you know a couple minutes for q a um, and yeah try to keep the q a focused on um, the experiences the power services of the tool or whether it's hardware or software uh, hands-on workshops uh, like i said uh, 25 to 30 like in a hackathon format or doing a workshop so my favorite format is uh, I like to do, you know, these workshops where it's like brief introductory, like this is the stuff, here's some of what you can do with it. Here's a quick how to get to A to B within like, you know, max like 30 minutes to 45 minutes, depending on how long your workshop session is. But I try to get people there as quick as possible. Uh, to also leave room for uh, those who might still be struggling to catch up to have time to get there and then leave a, at least half of your workshop time uh, for experimentation. So with um, uh, Ben Strand from Hologram last year at IoT DevFest, uh, I put a workshop together with him. Uh, we called it like cellular IoT war driving and hacking shenanigans or something. Uh, and so uh, the way we had set it up was here's a couple of examples of how to get the board set up with cellular and so it's like a little IOT device uh, it was an Arduino cellular device I believe uh, we're like here's how to get this all set up and then what we want you to do is run these several examples and these examples used to do a different thing uh, and then leave room at the end and be like okay we showed you how to connect it to this drag and drop IOT platform we showed you how to encode uh, change a couple of things and how to receive messages. Now you have the rest of this time to create this potential project where you combine everything, where you control it remotely and tell it to do all these different functions we taught you. Spend the rest of the time to hack it. And you can do it any way you want. Like, the, like we know this is possible. We've done it. We're not going to tell you how. Uh, we'll send it to you afterwards, but it's like the challenge portion. So in that sense, you've, you've taught them uh, the basics you've done most of the work to get them with everything working so that's that gratification someone needs so whenever you're educating anybody right it's uh, what I've learned is you need to get them through those first those psychological humps where it's like that whole you know person walks into a hacker space and they don't think they can do anything so you need to immediately show them that hey you might not totally understand what we're doing here, but you did it. I had you do it and you got it all working. Okay. So now it's not that scary because you were able to do it. Uh, so now let's go through and explain to you how you did it and then give you time to free explore. And then I want to have a conversation with you afterwards. 
So that's, I think, the best way, the best format to get feedback because you're, you're there with them through the whole process of learning your product or your software. Um, but uh, not, that's not something that one can do all the time unless you have really, that comes down to budget. So that's where I like to partner with the group and be like, hey, you have the hardware, I have the software, let's take your peanut butter and you know my chocolate. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well. Mohib, I had a question just going back to something you were saying earlier. It seems like there's a little bit of a tension not conflict, but attention between, you know, your background coming from hackerspace community where learning and exploring is seems to be more bottom up, sort of individual driven versus corporate environments where it's more top down, quarterly goals, annual goals. And, you know, from a founder's perspective and your experience in startups, what would you say that how do you balance that tension developing new products and trying to explore your interests, but also trying to be a business, especially as a startup and trying to think about goals. And how do you balance going between those two ways of moving forward? You gotta hack it. <laughs> so uh, the, I say that because I, to me, the word like hacking as it is in this context is uh, finding, you know, clever or creative, um, uh, ways to solve problems using the resources you have. So in the past, you know, you tend to have these tensions where, um, uh, you know, there's the corporate bottom line and there's the, you know, we have to do this because we know it's, that's always the question when, especially when you're going to a company that's not sure if they need an evangelist. So I've been at places where budgets were tighter. I mean, like now I'm at Amazon, Things are a little bit more comfortable, I'll say that much. So where uh, they, you know, they have to justify like, can we do these things? Can we put the money to send you to Maker Faire? Cause it just sounds like we're sending you to have fun at a big festival with toys. Um, <laughs> so the, the, at the end of the day, it's very important that you take down those notes, like, uh, and not just notes that say like, oh, I, I did the thing and I'm, you know, crossing off lines. Um, you want to try to do your best to one optimize like coverage you're getting. So th this is the part where you have to get a little bit more like marketing about it, right? Where um, you want to find ways to like get content out of your community. Like you could spin up all day writing content, but that is costing money. That's your time that you're putting in that you could also be putting towards other uh, tasks that aren't, necessarily like um, resource intensive, like you're not having to go out to an event. So what I always try to do is the most, one of the most important things, and I forgot to mention this earlier, that a developer advocate or evangelist does is you're building a community and the community will drive uh, educating each other. You look at Arduino, for example, right? Yeah, they're building code and it is an open source project, but think of all the libraries used, think about most of the tutorials used probably used to get started. It was built by a community. Same with KiCad, right? You have these awesome people like Sean Heimel doing videos on it. <laughs> and so uh, you wanna find, um, and just like you would in a hackathon, you find those people that you know are somewhat more ahead and have a good vision that you can be like, hey, can you help the people around you at your table? It's the same way in the larger community. You try to find those like paragons within that 
uh, are excited and support them as much as you can. And I think it goes a long way. People really appreciate when, you know, they're using a tool and then somebody from that company reaches out to them and wants to create a relationship. It, it's, it gives them an empowering ownership, right? And, and you really want people to have that. You want to f- want them to feel part of it because it is a community that should be tight with the company, right? It's, it's a whole different way of thinking from what it was like, you know, with traditional engineering long ago, 20, 30 years ago, um, where now you're like, oh yeah, like everybody's branded, like software libraries have like a logo and a brand and an identity, right? It's just so crazy when you think about it, but uh, it's that kind of energy that gets people more involved. Uh, and then once that community starts building, that's a way to bring it to your company and be like, hey, there's value to this. Look, we're building a community and we need to go out and do this, right? I can't measure this necessarily. Like there are ways to measure reach, uh, measure um, a clever thing that happened at Hologram was, uh, you know, they would measure whenever like a blog post went out and as its reach went up, they would try to measure like how many leads or sales occurred from that, right? That doesn't work in every situation, right? Uh, At Amazon, I, I probably couldn't, directly correlate when I posted a blog post to how many sales I had because it's such a huge company and there's so many different moving parts that can't really measure what I did or what one of my coworkers did from our content. Not precisely. So it, it becomes a point of like, I think heart and intent where you're like, we need to have evangelists. We need to build a community. Uh, we know that by doing so, it will return on investment, so to speak, uh, but it'll return like you, it's it's invaluable feedback that you're getting, right? You're building a better and better product, and then you also have a community that's like, hey, we can also build these tools, and then there's the opportunity for them to build uh, more tools and resources on top of it. Uh, and like when you have those those key developers in your community, uh, they become evangelists for you, right? And and not to make it sound like, ha we we turned them into like little pawns. It's no, it's uh, they're helping. They're working with you because if you believe, if you, I will never work for a product uh, that I don't personally believe in, that I don't personally believe will help something. Because then I'm disingenuous when I'm out there being like, hey, this is really great for solving problems. I'm only saying that because they gave me a paycheck. No, you you want to go out and believe it, and then that energy I think is contagious. Yeah. And I, one of my questions was going to be like, how do you measure this feedback? And you bring up a good point, right? It's in marketing, it's very nebulous a lot of times where, you know, you, you post a blog post on how to do something, right? Your, your project with AWS and how many things did that sell? And you're like, I don't you know. It's hard to track people unless you're like putting stuff in their computers that say like, oh, they visited your project. And then three months later came back and signed up for an AWS account, right? You don't know. Um, but I, I love the way that you're kind of spinning because I always thought a developer advocate was somebody who was a developer and they were also a brand advocate. So they kind of mashed those two together. But I like the way that you've spun it around and said, no, I'm actually advocating for the developers, for the customers. And that feedback loop is so important. And that's a little tough to measure unless you start measuring like number of tickets put, yeah. put in for the production team, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it really is about like, the people at the end of the day, whatever you're doing, and like, yeah, there's 
development involved and I think it really helps if you're a developer advocate that is also very skilled and has a broad sense of understanding because you're going to have conversations that are going to throw you off. Uh, you know, where I sit with AWS, so I'm, I'm on the serverless team, uh, but so that means like AWS Lambda, so these uh, compute functions. That layer sits in such a way that like it touches every product and every product touches <laughs> a good number of services. So when I'm out there, like uh, I might have conversations about machine learning or I might have conversations about data analytics and storage and all sorts of stuff. So it helps to be versed and it's one of the most important things about a developer advocate along with community building and creating feedback loops for the product teams is um, playing. You must absolutely have a passion to play because you're gonna find weird stuff that you can do and you'll be like, oh, the community can know about it. I like to create plans, sort of, where I think, okay, I see this, all these puzzle pieces come together. That's why I love being at AWS. It's like, we're just basically puzzle pieces, right? And I like to put those pieces together and be like, okay, here's a picture we can create. Okay, how do I get people to understand all the pieces of the puzzle? Because there's so many things and you can't just be like, you can build this and they're like, but how? But where to begin? I'm like, okay, let me try to figure out the most base core version of that. So with everything I do, every guide I've ever written, I try to reduce the complexity at first view. So I call it like at a glance where, have you ever looked at a code example, like firmware, for example, and you're just like, cool, I don't want to look at that. That's a lot of stuff. And it looks like I'm going to be spending some extra time reading, understanding what's going on, or maybe it's code I, I've never seen before, so it's scary. But the reality is if you sit down and look at it, you're like, oh, it's just, it's not that complicated. It just looks scary. So code should, an example, an example should never look scary, right? It should literally be as slim down as possible. So everything I do, I try to be like, what is the bare bones minimum to do a very powerful thing? And and then keep slimming that down, slimming that down. The less number of steps, the less number of, the less degrees of separation from your guide. The, the less people are going out and having to look up how to do a thing. You should try to put as much of everything they need to do in there while also not making it too complex. So uh, that's been the core of why I think any of my content has been successful is that you try to keep it human and uh, readable and you know you have to have empathy for your developer like try to be like if i was looking at this like not just like oh, i did the content here's all the stuff you need to figure it out it's like no you want to you know really you know chip away at that block until it's like pristine because i i won't name the specific example but there was a uh library I was looking at and they put the just a huge number of if defs for every type of board that or display version of this display that you would use so it was just this monolithic piece of code I'm like this doesn't give me anything this I could run it and it would work but I don't know how to do anything I'd have to like chip away <laughs> I'm like just give me a thing that tell, shows me all the base things I need to know and then if it needs to go deeper split that content up, right? And now you have a series and now you have, you're bringing a community with you like, hey, let's go on this journey together. Uh, a good example of how our team has done that is uh, Eric Johnson. 
And our team has a Twitch series called Happy Little APIs. So kind of like Bob Ross. <laughs> and, uh, you know, through like uh, 12 or 13 episodes, he explains like, let's build this full featured application, um, but starting very slowly piece by piece until we get there, you know, consumable bits. I try to do the same thing with my examples and I like the way you described it for trying to cut it down to its bare minimum to do a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, uh, it's what, it, and I always bring it back to hackerspaces, right? So the, the beauty of a hackerspace, right, is you're there, you're working on your thing, and there's all these other people with varying experience, and whenever you hit a wall, you can just shout to the ether and be like, hey, does anybody know how to do this thing? And then someone's there, helps you get over that little bit, and then you keep that momentum. Whereas like, when I was growing up, learning on my own, I'd hit a wall and be like, well, there's nobody who can help me solve this. And after you know, a few hours, whatever, spinning gears, you just decide to like, I'll drop this, I'll come back to it. And then you might never come back to it. And right. I think that you wanna prevent that from ever happening with whatever you're trying to teach, like whether it's hardware, software. If somebody hits a wall, there needs to be a way to bust through that. And I think when you build a community, then they can do that for each other. Same as if you're at a hackathon or a workshop, you want people to get help from their neighbor. Like you, you, you can't be the forever source of assistance and guidance. No, it's the whole teach a man to fish kind of thing, right? So it's, right. you gotta teach people to teach themselves and just be part of that community. It's being a part of that community instead of just considering yourself, we're gonna lead this community and show them the right best practices. It's, Nobody has the best practices, right? They have, here's a best practices of ours. Here's something slimmed down. Hopefully it helps, you know, gain momentum. And that's really what it's all about is build your community, make things easy, you know, you know add value to people's lives, right? At the end of the day, they just make sure people are having good lives. <laughs> and if their life is being a developer or a maker, a hardware hacker, then that's where you help them. So. Excellent, yeah. Uh, so in conclusion here, where can people find you on the socials? Yeah, so pretty much everywhere, at Virgil Vox, V-I-R-G-I-L-V-O-X. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to find me. So on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. You are most active on those two, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mohib. This has been very enlightening for me. This is really cool to see the world of developer advocacy. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been awesome to see also just your experience from startups all the way to one of the biggest companies in the world and just kind of the similarities. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. It's all been right. really awesome. Thanks for sharing. All right. Cheers. Hack the planet. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Hello Blink Show. Find show notes at helloblinkshow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skal Riza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash aminemaxwell slash routine. send a get request and from there i can make whatever i want because i've got uh oh, oh you cut out there <laughs> that is not ideal i can see i'm here buddy. <sighs>
but I do think okay. Sean's frozen and he looks like a really... Oh, I'm screenshotting that. <laughs> I literally was just about <laughs> to do the same thing. <laughs> so good.